everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horback. Before we get started, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com and sign up for our Patreon account. You get early access to episodes, bonus content, and you get to be a part of our AMA episode every month. This week, I'm really excited for our guest. We have Dr. Brent Hogarth. He is a sports and clinical psychologist, an expert in training flow states, mindfulness, and self-control for both sports and corporate athletes. Brent has provided performance-enhancing training to Olympic athletes, professional athletes, U.S. military, computer engineers, authors, hedge fund managers, serial entrepreneurs, and more. We will unpack what a flow state is, how they relate to performing better later on in the show. In a nutshell, flow is a state of consciousness where you perform your best, feel your best, and live your best life. Brent is the head coach at the Flow Research Collective, whose mission is to understand the science behind ultimate human performance and to use it to train individuals and organizations. My husband, Eric, will be joining us for this episode. He signed up for the Zero to Dangerous program at the Flow Research Collective, so he has some pretty interesting insight. Brent was actually Eric's coach while he took the course at the Flow Research Collective, so that's how everybody met. If you want to learn more about Dr. Brent Hogarth, you can go to brenthogarth.com. He actually has an ebook coming out this week. He's also launching his own podcast, which I highly encourage you to listen to. You can also sign up for your free assessment with him on his website, brenthogarth.com. And again, I will link everything below. So without further ado, Dr. Brent Hogarth. Okay, well, for today's episode, we have Dr. Brent Hogarth. Thank you, Hogarth. Thank you for correcting me. I had someone else on and I butchered their name and they let me do it. So yeah. Don't worry. I'm not going to let you get away with that. No, I appreciate it. I have to do it all the time too with his last name because it's very difficult as well. So you are a clinical psychologist. You have your your doctorate in that. And then you went to school for your master's for sports psychology, if I'm remembering. Yes. Let me, I'll tell you a little bit about my kind of my educational path here. If it's a not a traditional path. So I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, kind of a big backcountry skier, national gymnast, played a lot of sports. And I was also kind of an out of control youth, big graffiti artist. And I was in and out of court. You know, I people are surprised to hear it these days. But yeah, I had quite a chip on my shoulder growing up. And so I was sent away to a military school in just outside Toronto uh, before I went to Western, which is a university in Toronto, for kinesiology. So I studied the human body and sport and movement. And it was at that point I was working in the fitness industry and I recognized myself and my clients wanted a lot more than just physical training. And so I was super privileged to be able to go over to India, spend some time in some Buddhist monasteries out there. And it was at that point that I recognized, you know, I, I was in sport my whole life and I never got introduced to mental and emotional training. So I kind of dedicated myself at that point to take the path to become a sport and clinical psychologist. You know, and I'll, I know you're interested in mysticism and whatnot a little bit. So I'll share with you what was the really changing point for me in that trip was you know, I, I think I went to that trip seeking self-acceptance in some ways. And I recognized in meditation and through Buddhist philosophy that that self I was trying to accept was just an illusion. It was just an idea, a belief, my ego in a sense. And so in meditation, being able to distance myself from that just a little bit, 
I gained so much flexibility in my life that I was able to take a new path. So from there, I went to San Francisco. I did, like you said, a master's in sport and clinical and a doctor in clinical psych. You guys might find this cool. I lived in a 25 person hippie collective in the heart of Hayden Ashbury. And so that was pretty, pretty wicked. And uh, yeah, that's been part of my path. And I did my postdoc and pre-doc working with division one student athletes at different universities uh, throughout the States. Oh, wow. That is really interesting. So Leah, I will first, how does someone who has like said chip on their shoulder, like go from that and being a little bit out of control or angry or, you know, these things that you see a lot, especially right now on like social media to self-improvement and having the sense of like no self, like that's like a huge leap. It's almost probably like a different person, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always interesting when people when I tell them about my past, they could never imagine that uh, I was charged with assault twice with a weapon causing bodily harm, you know, in and out of court. It's uh, quite a shift that I, that I took in my life. And I think ultimately for me, it was about, you know, once I recognized that that self again was something I had created in my mind that was uh, conditioned through society and I, I could see it as the observer of it, that created the flexibility again to say, okay, is this certain, right now or not and a lot of the you know stepping away going on traveling as I'm sure you all are aware it gives us a new chance to reassess the rules and the roles that we play in our life and so stepping away from my kind of social network stepping away from the the rules and roles that I typically played just gave me that uh, that inflection point to, to take a shift and you know I think when it comes to dealing with the the violence and or the the tragedies that we're all experiencing right now in our own way, it comes down to recognizing what's within our control. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, what was within my control is managing my own emotions, managing you know where I move my hands and feet, and, and picking a cause that I can make an impact in and, and just focusing on that single cause. And that's, that's how I tr- tend to live my life, trying to focus on, on really what's within my control. Mm-hmm. So how... What would you say like the steps are for people to like maybe have like that actualization? Because I feel like there's that um, who said it that it's only 10 percent of people can access flow. Like that's like one belief that some people have. And then like I was listening to Mapping Cloud Nine where he was kind of arguing that saying that no, like almost anyone can access it with like the proper protocols. And then was it Nietzsche that was saying 10 percent, only 10 percent of people can access it? Would you agree that it's limited? I'm quite a pessimistic individual. So I'm quite an optimistic person. That's probably a lot of part of what's helped me in my my life. You know, I I would say that we've all experienced flow state and we've all been able to get absorbed in moments in our life that, you know, time seems to slow down or speed up. We feel a sense of effortless action and we feel that sense of joy of really performing and feeling at our best. And I guess just for your audience to know, I I do uh, work with the Flow Research Collective. My focus these days is really peak performance training with executives, professional athletes, those in the military. And we we are all about flow training. So how to get into the zone. And so to, to answer your question, I do think everyone's capable of, of getting into the zone, but it's often those environmental factors and those internal factors that can hold us back. So environmentally, distractions, things that are just clutter and, and chaos that helps that makes it more difficult to be present in the moment because that's really what flow is. Flow is the ability to quiet the frontal cortex 
be present in the moment and engaged in a specific goal where we can get absorbed in and kind of taken away from it. So it's dealing with those external chaos as well as the internal chaos. And for me, what that has looked like, Hannes and Eric, is, is always been learning to regulate my emotions more effectively. What causes us the difficulty of accomplishing our goals is when we prioritize ultimately feeling better over taking actions towards what's most important in our life. And so learning to regulate my emotions. You know, when I was an angry guy, when I was a kid, I would think I would need to express that anger in a way so that I could dissipate it. But now I've learned through meditation and through, you know, my training that we're able to, you know, our own emotions can't hurt us. You know, my own anger can't hurt me. My sadness can't hurt me. My anxiety can't hurt me. And I'm able to accept that and have, when I'm able to open up to that and not struggle with it, I can, again, take action towards what I care about. And that goes away on itself. The anxiety, the depression, the anger, it will subside. But uh, so I don't get caught up in that kind of never ending battle of trying to manage my emotions anymore. So would you say that like EQ and flow go hand in hand, like someone that has a higher EQ can maybe like tap into flow easier and then someone who has a lower EQ might like only experience it in fleeting moments? Yeah, good, really good question. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance to this. What I would say is it's important to recognize that, you know, what we're talking about here is yes, flow state, but we're also talking about kind of self-regulation. That's the bigger picture. So our ability to accomplish long-term goals and flow is one aspect of that. It brings the accelerated learning, creativity, et cetera. But we could also find flow in things that aren't in line with our long-term goals. You know, drugs, sex, rock and roll, taking huge risks. We all, we can get into flow doing that as, as well as antisocial behavior. You know, the act of killing someone, someone is typically in a flow state when they're doing that. They're completely focused in the moment. They're absorbed in it. So if someone is not able to regulate their emotions, what I would be curious about is perhaps they're getting into flow in areas that aren't leading towards, you know, their ultimate higher kind of purpose. And, and so they can maybe still get flow, but is it uh, the dark side of flow or is it flow that's bringing them towards what's most important, right? Mm-hmm. You said that you're an optimist. So like what made an optimist do like a dissertation on the dark side of flow? Well, you know, I recognize again, looking back on my life that my greatest peak moments in, in flow growing up was, yes, it was skiing, it was in sports, but really it was in street fights or painting trains and billboards as a graffiti artist. It was those really high risk activities that I felt, you know, completely absorbed in the moment, really a heightened sense of control and, and power uh, that is addictive. We know when we're in flow state, we get hit with, you know, a really powerful cocktail of neurochemicals that make us want to experience it over and over again. And so when I look back on my life, I, I think part of what my journey has been is kind of changing my relationship to flow in recognizing that it does have this potential dark side. And it's not only that we can experience flow in behaviors that are maybe are antisocial. You know, there's a lot of research on flow and addiction, whether it's video games, social media, internet use, flow, and it decreases our risk perception. So we become more vulnerable, but we take on bigger risks when we're in flow. And then there's also this aspect of Again, antisocial behavior or the the down that we come from, from going from these huge highs in flow when we just feel on top of the world to these lows where, you know, the rest of life can feel mundane. And so if we're not in a, you know, playing our sport or really, you know, in an empowered situation, our business, the rest of life can feel like 
it doesn't quite have the joy. So learning, you know, in meditation, in my studies in Buddhism, to find a philosophy of life that helps me incorporate those peak moments into my day-to-day living has been kind of an ongoing journey and something I'm, I'm continuing to try to experience. Because again, it's not all about flow. It's about self-regulation and flow is just kind of one piece within that. So with incorporating mindfulness into flow to kind of like balance out what can be like the dark side of flow, like the depression or like the extreme risk taking, I was reading in your dissertation, like the difference between Eastern society and Western society when it comes to flow. So how does that work? If like the whole concept of like oneness, if I recall properly, like that kind of like hinders flow a little bit, or it's like less intense. So I guess is that is that problematic ever? Like, can you ever practice like too much meditation or mindfulness to where you're not getting that edge from flow if you really are losing like the sense of self? Candace, I'm impressed you read through some of my dissertation. <laughs> there. So what we're talking about here is when, when we look at the cultural factors with flow, we recognize that flow as a concept is created mostly in the West. And the West, by the West, I mean North America, we're referring to well, we are a very independent culture. We're a very autonomous culture. We really strive to kind of pull oneself up by the back bootstraps and kind of take on this path of life uh, on our own. And so flow is really understood through that lens. But when we try to apply flow to more Eastern cultures, so in my dissertation, I looked at studies in Japan and China, where it's more of a collectivist culture, right? Their flow state is more in regards to creating social harmony. So when we talk about flow, there's, you know, our clear goals, immediate challenge feedback, and challenge skill balance. That's kind of the golden rule of flow. And so the challenge skill balance and the goals for those that are coming from more Eastern cultures might look a little bit different than those in Western cultures. And certainly there's more crossover than not. There's more similarities and there's outliers on both sides. But I think to answer your question, the relationship between mindfulness and flow is a tricky one. So in a lot of studies, mindfulness has been shown to increase flow because really the the key principle of flow is being present in the moment and flow follows focus. With that said, one of the components that work, you know, kind of gets us to the dark side of flow is that we lose a sense of self-consciousness when we're fully engaged in the moment in, in flow. And when we're mindful, alternatively, we are self-aware. We are, we are more conscious. So mindfulness can increase flow, but that one concept of losing a sense of self, it can actually hinder that one component of flow. So it's a tricky balance where I think it's, you know, to combine mindfulness and flow, it's about using mindfulness to choose when is this the appropriate situation to jump into flow, you know, diving right in and then being able to reflect again and say, okay, is this leading me towards my goals or my values or is this potentially taking me to too big of a risk or a place I don't want to go, right? Yeah, I think that, so you mentioned the challenge skills balance. And I think uh, for the sake of listeners, we should probably unpack that just a little bit. There's a lot of definitions for the challenge skills balance that relate to flow. And I think that the way that the Flow Research Collective that you're a part of had explained it in the program was just a, a really easy and awesome way to get it across to like the lame person. So would you mind jumping into that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. So again, the challenge skill balance is considered the golden rule of flow. And the reason why is because within a challenge skill balance, we also have a clear goal and we have immediate feedback. And those are the three principles antecedents to get into flow. And so what we understand by the challenge skill balance is that 
there's a sweet spot. When our skills are high and our challenges are high, that's when we have to give all of ourselves over to the task at hand, and that's when we f- find flow. If the challenge is, is too low and our skills are high, we tend to be somewhat bored or apathetic. If the challenge is too great and our skills are too low, we tend to be a little bit anxious or, or overwhelmed. And so finding that sweet spot is important. And the one piece I would just share that's really fascinating around this principle is we can only find flow in action, in taking action towards a goal. So there has to be a challenge. You know, when we lay on the beach, it feels great, which is a great recovery if, you know, we, we enjoy it, but we don't experience flow in that because, again, flow is an action-oriented state. So that's a, a, a key to kind of recognize and appreciate about flow is that it leads to personal growth. And that's really where the dark side can come in is that the challenge scale balance is not static. It's always changing. So we're always needing to increase our our skill level and increase our challenges. And that's how it leads to growth and personal development. But that's how it could also lead to this never ending path of never arriving at a place, perhaps, where one is content and at peace in the moment. And so there's uh, that balance as well. I feel like this is probably one of your quotes. I did a terrible job note taking. But it said that the ability to find joy in challenges is, is essential to individual development. And then that was kind of explaining that you need to kind of enjoy a little bit of the challenge in order to grow. And personally speaking, I find that like my most difficult times in my life are where I kind of like evolved as a person and I like became a better person in like any area of my life. But it took a while for me to kind of like lean into that pain and like accept it and then try to like overcome it and become better on the other end. I think a lot of people when they have discomfort or face a challenge, it's like very easy to just like throw your hands up and say, never mind, because we do want to be comfortable. So I guess when you have somebody, when you're coaching somebody, how do you kind of shift their mindset to like lean into the discomfort rather than like running away from it? Yeah, great, great question. And that's well, first of all, I appreciate you sharing your experience. Uh, I can relate to that. For me, you know, again, flow research suggests that the most memorable and meaningful times in our life is often when we look back and see that we accomplished a task that really stretched us, you know. And so just knowing that has cer- certainly served me and my increased willingness to move towards difficult challenges. With that said, also, you know, maybe I'll, I'll share a diagram with you that might kind of help yourself and your your audience kind of understand how I help people relate to their to their emotions and the struggle of that shows up in life. So we'll do a little bit of art class here. So I'm going to do two squares here. So this square, Canis and Eric, represents our sense of who we are, our sense of self. And so everything within this square represents our thoughts, our feelings, our internal experience, those challenges and struggles really that you're identifying. So let's just take one, for instance, for instance, of anxiety. We often experience anxiety in life moving towards what's most important. Unfortunately, because we typically don't want to experience anxiety, we suffer from this phenomenon called experiential avoidance. So this is a tendency for us to all control, avoid, get rid of these the suffering. And that's what often catches us up in life. So to describe that, I'm going to do some arrows pointing inward. So again, we focus on controlling, getting rid of or avoiding this. But what happens now is our sense of who we are can shrink right around that struggle, that depression, that anxiety. So when we struggle with the anxiety, we become more fused with it. 
And now it's not just anxiety, it's anxiety of our anxiety. It's guilt that, you know, my anxiety is taking me out of my life. It's shame. So when we struggle and don't accept our emotions, they become stickier. They become secondary emotions. So it's a lot harder to move through it. And a lot of this is fueled by what we call rule governed behavior. And what that really means is we have these unconscious rules in our life that tell us, no, I shouldn't experience anxiety again, and so I need to avoid it. And, and typically, you know, we come by these naturally. Typically, it's it's not beneficial to experience anxiety or fear. You know, we've evolved as a species by protecting ourselves and, and others. So we have to overcome this rule-governed behavior that suggests, you know, we don't want to experience these things. And, and so what this other side of the diagram will show is exactly that. So if we have the same anxiety within here, this again is our sense of who we are. As opposed to the arrows pointing inward, I'm gonna draw some arrows pointing outward. And what these arrows are now pointing to is our values. So I'll do some stars out here. These are our values. So things that in the present moment we can move to that give us a sense of living in alignment with our authentic self. And when we do that, by first accepting the anxiety, not struggling with it, not turning on that struggle switch in our head and refocusing on our values, now our sense of self can grow. This box, as opposed to shrinking around the anxiety, can grow. And so that anxiety becomes something that becomes less consuming of who we are. And we have the flexibility and the willingness to move towards our values and to experience the anxiety because we know we're moving towards something we really care about. And so this is a lot of my work is developing what we call kind of psychological flexibility, the ability to allow our emotions to run their course and stay engaged in what we call value-driven behavior. And so that's a lot of like the work as a clinician I help individuals kind of lean into. Any questions about that or is that is this relatable? I'm curious in your own experience. No, to me that makes a lot of sense. And for the book that I'm thinking about, did you ever read The Untethered Soul? I've been recommended it many times recently. I haven't read it yet. So the second box makes me think about his principles, which is essentially like no emotion is a bad emotion and you shouldn't judge any of the emotions, whether it's like anger, fear, anxiety, even on the opposite end, like love and happiness and joy. And you experience it, but you let it go. And holding on to those things is kind of where you create like a blockage of energy. And then that just kind of like shifts and shapes your reality. So it's that's like a very good like visual for that. Well said. So then are you training people to take those, let's say the anxiety, which a lot of people would identify as a weakness. In that training, you, you call it rule govern behavior. behavior. Okay. So in your training, are you trying to identify that anxiety as more of a strength and point it towards the values? Or can you try to help me understand a little bit of what's going on in the mindset of of the client? Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. So we're, I think we were talking just before this about avoidance, right? So it's the things that we avoid that, that persist. And so that anxiety by continuing to live a a rule governed life is that anxiety becomes worse because we will avoid it temporarily through distractions or whatnot, but it will keep showing up. And every time it shows up, it will take us out of our life and into our own internal experience to try to manage it. So we think we're managing it by not experiencing it, but our life becomes run by this constant tendency to avoid it through distractions and whatnot. So my work with clients is 
I don't know if it looking at it as a strength, but looking at it as certainly an opportunity in that moment to, you know, like Candace is saying, open up to the anxiety, recognize that it's there and and let that be an, an inflection point to redirect towards what's most important. And again, I think that the thing with rule governed behaviors, it typically works. So we come by this tendency to want to avoid anxiety because it is usually facilitative, but you know, just like after I go for a workout and I crack my ice tray and put it into my protein shake, sometimes that ice tray doesn't have ice in it, but I'll still throw it in the, in into the freezer, right? So we have to refill that ice tray, and and that's where the flexibility of mindfulness can really support us. So mindfulness being the ability to be open and receptive, have an open heart to our internal experience, and to redirect us to our purpose. And and so anxiety, emotions, they really only last 90 seconds unless we get caught up in the story of them. And so I don't know if it's a strength, but I think that you're on to something there because our life experiences and the challenges that we go through, they develop strengths within us. So if there's an, if there is an underlying anxiety that we've maybe experienced through a rough childhood or whatnot, there's strengths that we've learned to cope with that, that we can double down on and lean into. And then, so perhaps there's something to play off that. Cause they, I mean, I guess the idea is that they may have served you once. Like if you were a child and you developed some sort of anxiety or some sort of fear around something, they had served you when you were a child, sure. But as an adult, they just don't serve you anymore. So the idea, I guess, then is to rewrite them somehow. No, Eric, I, I really appreciate the perspective you're bringing in here. And I think that's why a lot of work as a clinician is about validating people's experiences. Because again, if we don't validate our own emotions and recognize that we've come by them naturally, we're again struggling with them and we're going to get more caught up with them. And so when I'm working with clients, whatever their experience is and their emotions are, me just saying, you know, it's, it's understandable that you're having that experience gives them the opportunity to accept that, to open up to it and to redirect towards, you know, what we want to move towards. It's so funny, you know, the Carl Rogers had this quote, as soon as we can accept ourselves for who we are, then we're able to change. And it's because when we accept ourselves, we no longer feel like shit about ourselves. And when we don't feel like shit, we can take a lot of change and, and be a lot more productive. So I think you're onto something with that. And then again, it comes back to that ice tray analogy. It works typically, but not always, right? And we're on time right now where we're all feeling overwhelmed and having to pivot and adjust. So I, I appreciate you bringing that in. Yeah. yeah, that guilt is just so immensely powerful if you allow it to sink in, right? I would have students, so I worked at a couple of universities in the counseling center, and they would come in often with a frustration of procrastination, right? And I would say, okay, just when you go to do your work, just sit down at your desk before you even open anything up, just sit and allow whatever emotions to arise to, and just be present to them. Don't need do any work. Just sit and allow the guilt, the shame, the anxiety to just be there and, and not get stuck into it. Allow it to pass and then jump into your work because what as a or or they're just working to avoid or control that and, and then they'll pull out of their work too easy. And it's actually kind of going on that mindfulness or meditation angle. It's important for us to also use meditation as not another way to avoid our internal experience. So a lot of people can go into meditation thinking, um, I need to feel great after this, or I need to quiet my thoughts. And that again is kind of looking at that smaller box, a way to, to control or avoid, as opposed to really the heart of meditation is becoming familiar with what our internal experience is. And so I always know people are in that avoidance trap when they're coming out of meditation saying, hey, I can't do meditation or like, you know, I'm not calm. Yeah. So you work, I mean, you work a lot with 
extreme sports athletes, Olympic athletes, renegade entrepreneurs. Like you work with people that literally put themselves on purpose way outside their comfort zones, way outside the social norms, social constructs, and they have to operate on these levels. I guess, how does that whole tie in? Do you have any stories or anything that can help us better understand exactly some of the like tools and tactics that people like this can use to live a more high-performance life? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when we looked at that this box again, these things that we try to control or avoid, often those are the things when we open up to, they bring us into flow. So a lot of flow training is about changing our relationship to fear. Often fear is something we avoid and try to mitigate, but we know that when we move towards something we're fearful of or we have to be vulnerable, we pay fucking attention and therefore we get flow. And so helping people open up to have the increased willingness to live a value-driven life, to take action towards what they most fear, knowing that it on the back end of that, they're going to often get into a peak performance state is a lot of the kind of groundwork, you know, and, and you know, Erica, you know, through our zero to dangerous course with flow research collective, we focus on a lot of aspects of positive psychology basics. So we want to be able to essentially help people move through the flow cycle effectively. And, and so for your listeners to know, we don't think of flow as just an on and off switch. We consider there are four stages of flow that we need to be, that we need to do well at. So we need to struggle well. We need to, you know, if it's waking up in the morning and taking on that hardest task first, we want to kind of lean into that. And then what are we doing to release the second stage of flow? How do we change our neurobiology so that when we come back into our flow activity, we're ready to kind of be locked in? So it's we go from struggle to release, which could be an active walk, could be breath work, could be taking a quick uh bath or watching some humor comedy and then coming back into our flow block and then really prioritizing recovery on the back end whether that's yoga taking a nap uh, eating food so we want to first of all as i work with clients is to build their lifestyle around the flow cycle so it's not just okay i need to enter it right now and then you know i can do whatever i want and the rest of the day it's like no we need to struggle well recognize that struggling is not an option in high performance so let's struggle well first let's prioritize our release neck and, and recovery and then we're naturally going to be able to get into flow more and so i'd say that's the first tool to recognize that flow is a cycle and then there's a lot of others and we know that all the flow triggers which i'll go through some of them now what they do again is they drive our attention in the present moment and they reduce the amount of thinking or, or cognitive load so flow triggers are some of those first three principles i said earlier clear goals immediate feedback and a challenge skill balance also novelty we know that when we're in a novel place such as traveling we get hit with dopamine norepinephrine that focuses us, us on the present moment so novelty is a great flow trigger we can talk about risk whether it's a social risk an emotional risk a creative risk for sure a physical risk we all know if we've ever been in a car accident or played extreme sports when we're in danger we pay attention we get flow so using risk as a flow trigger is, is great i wouldn't recommend right off the bat using physical danger as one though we know gratitude is a flow trigger so when we're gratitude when we're grateful sorry we connect to a sense of humility and i think that's a big piece we can maybe riff on a bit is when we're talking about flow, we're talking about shifting from the conscious, explicit mind to the unconscious. And when we're egomaniacs, when we're stuck in our, our ego or our emotions, which are often fueled by 
our ego. So when we practice gratitude, it quiets down. That's why a lot of people love psychedelics because it kind of connects us to a sense of a small self and a sense of awe. And so that, again, helps us just be present and get a, a lot more flow that way. So I don't know if there's an angle there that you guys want to jump on, but I can go through a lot of other flow triggers. Yeah, I can't help but notice that there is such a such an incredible link between like the esoteric way of thinking about it and then the actual flow states. For example, in flow, there's you you called it the dark side of flow, where yeah. there is inevitably well, so there's two things. One, the dark side of flow, which is you leaning into something that's really gonna kill you, <laughs> right? And then some other things. And then also like there's the recovery phase. So you you are in a flow state, you're pumped with all these neurochemicals that are just making you feel amazing. The endorphins, uh, what is it, dopamine, uh Dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, oxytocin, anandamide, endocannabinoid, yeah, all the good stuff. Right. So all these amazing chemicals are just going through your mind. And then afterwards, if you don't recover properly, you you literally lose all of that and you can slip into negative self-talk, self-doubt, all these things that can really be a detriment to whatever the goal is that you're working on. So recovery is such a huge thing. Now I know that when people I don't I haven't really experienced too much of this but I do know that when you're let's say in like a shamanic journey type of situation if you travel into what they call the shadow self and all these dark deep deep places it almost releases the same kind of anxieties or like the same self doubts of as like a post flow state or they can travel you upwards to this like higher self and this more creative realm of whatever. You know, there's a lot of places where they intertwine. I, th I feel like where flow seems to be more spiritual at times when you're in those states. And sometimes spirituality in itself can kind of pull you out of the dark places. Have you experienced anything like that? I'm not exactly sure which angle. There's a few angles that you brought up. One angle that you're mentioning is kind of maybe the being confronted with our shadow self in like a psychedelic or shamanic journey. And we know that often, you know, we talked about in flow, it's that ability to move towards fear. It's often that shadow self that says, fucking go for it. You know, it's that it's that relentless side. And so, you know, in psychedelic or shamanic experiences or even in psychotherapy, learning to to accept that we have a darker side to us, it often opens us up to have uh, increased relentlessness to take action towards fearful activities. Um, that's one angle I was kind of thinking about. The other angle was, I'm not sure, to be honest, about the difference between those shamanic experiences and flow being a more spiritual kind of path. What I would share, and I know you, I think you've mentioned listening to mapping cloud nine is that when we are on a high performance path if we're ever stuck there is often a spiritual solution and when we're on the spiritual path and we're kind of stuck there's often a high performance solution i really think that's a important thing to take away uh, from our talk today that you know when we talk about flow we're talking often about a, a high performance path we're talking about how to get accelerated learning creativity decision making etc and mindfulness, in, in my view at least, is more a, a spiritual path. So it's about, you know, when that high performance path, when we're getting that come down from flow, you know, that's when being open and receptive to our experience using mindfulness can really be facilitative. I haven't done much of the shamanic journeys, so I couldn't speak personally. I've certainly done some psychedelics and can relate in, the, in that way, but yeah. Yeah, I read uh, Michael Palin's book, How to Create a Mind. I haven't read that, no. Yeah, it's like some of the comments, some of the 
areas in his book, I just found like eerily familiar to the way that like in the flow program, the zero to dangerous flow program that I was a part of, I just found that the way he talks about some of the psychedelic journeys that he's been on in his book as a journalist were just eerily similar to some of like the experience you could have in a flow state. So when we, when I look, when I've looked at the research on psychedelics, as far as like a subjective experience, what is occurring is that again, it connects us to a state of awe. So we're kind of, you know, just in complete awe, just like when we're in nature and having like nature mysticism, when we look at these trees or nature or mountains and just like so overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And, and as a result, we feel we connect to that humbled sense of self. And therefore, all those emotions that are often a reflection of us kind of evaluating where we are in our life compared to where our ego wants us to be, all that kind of shuts down and quiets down. And so we can get a lot more into, into the unconscious and move from there with, with greater ease. So yeah, there's a lot of great research coming out on psychedelics, mushrooms and, and whatnot. Uh, we'll see where the world goes here soon. So when it comes to flow, is there like a, a difference that you see between like an athlete that's tapping into it versus a CEO that's tapping into it that's like say maybe like in the financial sector versus someone who's trying to be a creative? Like are there different lanes, if you will, of flow? And then is there like a recipe for creativity? Billion dollar question. <laughs> So I would say the cool thing about flow is it was created by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and how he developed the theory of flow is he interviewed kind of the best of the best rock climbers, chess players, surgeons, athletes, and, and he found that there was these common subjective experiences that they all had. So I would say the flow experience is quite similar and it doesn't depend on what context you're kind of moving through. So it's again, you have this increased sense of body and mind merging. So we feel, you know, the dancer that is one with the dance, the writer is one with the words. There's a, a merging of body and, and action. There's this increased sense of time changing, slowing down, speeding up. There's a, it's intrinsically motivating, what we call an autotelic experience. So we do it for the sheer sake of doing it, which again kind of leads to the potential dark side of it. So there's the subjective experience of flow is actually quite similar. The neurochemistry of it is quite similar. So to answer your question, I don't know if it would be much different depending on who the individual is, I think that, or what their kind of performance arena is. With that said, it's a great question. And I, what do you think, Candice? What comes up for you? So... For me, I would say like, I feel like I can recognize moments when I've been in flow, like retrospectively. I don't know that I can just get into it when I want to. And I also wouldn't define myself as a creative person. Like I, it's just not my strong suit. And it's something that I always try to work on and improve. So I don't know. I guess that's why I'm like, I'm curious because I feel like Eric's pretty creative at least out of the two of us. And then I've heard that accessing flow can inspire creativity. Also, we've done like a lot of work that kind of like leaned, we thought was going to be more sciency and ended up being more mystical, which I loved. So we went to this thing called BioCybernaut and it was alpha brainwave training. And they were kind of explaining that a lot of creativity happens like when you are in a high theta state. So Flow is primarily alpha, correct? Or no, it's, it's a mix? High, high alpha and theta. Combin combined? Okay, so I guess that would make sense then. Because when we did it, I have a lot of like naturally occurring delta 
and my alpha was like improving during that week, but I had almost no theta. So I don't know if I'm just like not properly getting into flow. I don't know. It's it's tough because like I would I would get into like these really good like mindful places because like they kind of like stick you in a black box for an undetermined amount of hours and like you do like lose a sense of time and and self and you just know that you're in like a different place. I don't know. What I encourage you to maybe play with Ken is so we talk about in Zero to Dangerous a lot of separating what we call kind of divergent thinking from convergent thinking. So divergent is that creativity. That's that planning, strategizing, maybe uh, creating content, uh, whatnot. And so we want to separate that kind of mode of thinking from convergent thinking, which is really kind of executing on those goals that maybe you created in that uh, divergent thinking session. So I would give yourself an opportunity to, you know, it sounds like you're a really great convergent thinker. You can execute quite well, it sounds like. And then as far as the creative place, like give yourself scheduled times to open up and be more receptive to, to creativity. And some other tips that might help is reading novel material. So mm-hmm. reading kind of literature that's out of the norm for you and you're going to kind of recognize some patterns and that can might spark some creativity. As well as as far as mindfulness or meditation, you know, a lot of meditation is like single pointed meditation. And so that's more that convergent thinking. And so I would encourage you, if you want to get into more of a a creative kind of state of mind, do more kind of open body awareness meditation. So just observing what's occurring, not trying to shift your attention or awareness anywhere, just just being completely receptive of what's what's arising. And that can help maybe open up some more of that kind of pattern recognition. Those are a couple of things I'd suggest. But I mean, I'd be curious to see if you really aren't a creative person, because I I truly (laughs) believe we all have that within us. So Brett, one of our last conversations, you had mentioned some mindfulness retreats. These were, I think there was like a week long retreat where you meditate all day. I'm super interested in doing something like that. Could you help us understand a little bit more about the benefits of it and what actually happens in there? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So I did one in Nepal and I did one in, in India. So the one in India was a place called Tushita Meditation Center. It was just above where the Dalai Lama lives. And so it's, you know, I travel throughout India and you go to this one place called McLeod Ganj and it's all monks there. And it's up on the hills, it's a really beautiful spot. So this meditation center was really focused on teaching what's called Mahayana uh, Buddhism. So this is what the Dalai Lama represents. And in Mahayana Buddhism, it's there's two kind of wings to it. If we can imagine enlightenment in their context, it, it takes two wings. So the wing of personal wisdom and then the wing of uh, compassion. And so that's why when they meditate, it's kind of the wing of wisdom, the wing of compassion built onto each other. And so in this retreat, we, we learned uh, what's called the Lam Rim. This is the whole teaching of Buddha's kind of philosophies. And a lot of Buddhist kind of retreats or centers in different lineages don't teach a lot of as much philosophy as just, let's say, meditation practice. So we learned there's lectures, there's debates, and then there's a lot of, uh, a lot of meditation for sure, as well as a lot of use of kind of mantras uh, throughout our day. I'll tell you this one retreat I went to in Nepal, we were asked, I won't say I was great at it, to go say positive affirmations to the pet goats so that they would be <laughs> reborn in a better life. <laughs> so that was a, that the Tushita was like a two week meditation center introduction to Buddhism. And then in Nepal, I went to this place called Kopan Monastery. 
they have an annual course called their November course, which was really the first trainings where Westerners came across to Nepal to learn from Buddhist monks. And so this experience was really wild. There's about a thousand monks living there at the time when I was there. And again, similar experience. We'd wake up, we'd go into the, the gompa, which is kind of the, the temple. Uh, we'd do morning prostrations, which are kind of like a, like a burpee where you're kind of praying to these deities and these deities you know in buddhism is a lot different it's uh there's not a god that's with outside of us that we're praying to we're praying to you know when we see these images of buddhas to a state of consciousness that's already within us and we're just trying to open up to and kind of have revere for that so we start off the day with doing prostrations then we go right into meditation more buddhist philosophy and more meditation small little meals and then more like dharma study so studying buddhist text and uh, very simple life i could tell you that Something I'd love to go back there with you at any time. So keep me posted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I find it fascinating. So it's, I mean, flow itself is a, it's, it's like a different state of consciousness, right? And it sounds like that you had through these meditative, meditative practices, put yourself in a different state of consciousness. And there are all these different states of consciousness. I have two questions. One of them is from your experience with flow, with a lot of this spiritual retreat, You've had access, or at least you've allowed your mind to access all these different states of consciousness. Can you help me understand maybe, I don't want to say the difference between each one, because I know that's probably really hard to articulate, but maybe if we identify each one that maybe you've experienced, and then maybe you can share a little bit about those states of consciousness. And the reason why I'm asking that question is because I want to know if if you believe in reincarnation you talked about goats <laughs> and i want well, to take very good at that one but yeah, yeah you, t- you talked about affir- positive affirmations into goats so that they can be you know move on to their level but a lot of that to me ties back to different vibrations or different states of consciousness the whole idea of carl sagan talking about the fifth dimension the fourth dimension and all these and all these things i mean we've We've experienced some human beings that can say that they can access consciousness of the spirit world, all these, you know, all of these things. I would like to hear your take on all of that. Okay. Well, I'm afraid I might not have a lot to say. Okay. <laughs> so as far as the different states of consciousness that I've experienced, yeah, it's it's an almost an impossible question to to answer. With that being said, I recognize that who I am is the observer of all these states of consciousness. So while, you know, I might, my body and my mind might be experiencing things from childhood of anger or frustration to peak moments, I try just over and over again to ground myself as the pure observer of my experience. And so when we talk about, do I believe in afterlife or whatnot? My personal belief is that consciousness is not my body and not my mind and consciousness is, is ever pervasive. So um, I'm curious to see what happens. But I think that that was one of the things when I talk about shifting my life from India, once I realized that, you know, I'm not my body and not my mind, I was no longer identifying with something that was ultimately going to die or is, is, is in jeopardy. And that freed me again to lower my, my fears, my anxieties, my, my defensiveness. Because, you know, if I lose an arm, yes, I'm going to lose some of the things I can do, but I'm not going to lose my sense of who, who I am as the observer. And, and so I've always tried to ground myself since those experiences and identify with myself as just the observer of all my experience all those states of consciousness so i've experienced them but it's not who i am 
that's just been a lot more easy of a way for me, me to move through through my life. So you, you're more like taking more experiential, I don't want to say passive, that's probably a wrong way to put it, but maybe surrender to the ideas of these consciousnesses and say, okay, cool. That was a cool state of being. I'm, I'm observing that. I appreciated it. Let's move on to the next one. Well, you realize when you've experimented with some psychedelics that it's uh, it's a bunch of neurochemicals that are flowing through you that are making you enter these different states or seeing things differently or perceiving them differently. And when you've consciously experienced that through neurochemical or through psychedelic use, you recognize that it's all just neurochemicals that are that are impacting the state of consciousness. So I don't, uh, I'm just not as someone that, you know, I don't kind of, have visions of angels. I don't speak to other people. I don't have any of that psychedelic or kind of uh, psychic kind of experiences. It's not a realm that I live in. It, my realm is quite grounded in, I just want to be in peace in this moment. And, and I don't, yeah, I go off into some of those other areas that others uh, have some skill or affinity towards. Yeah. Yeah. You and me both. Yeah. I don't, I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm open to, you know, when people tell me they have, there's a lot of people that are really interested in, you know, the multiple layers of, I can even name the different kind of uh, people that they speak to or the different galaxies or, or whatnot. And it's for me, how I interpret that, I don't dismiss it, but what I understand it is it's again, like what we're talking about, it's different states of consciousness and it's not nothing for me is like a, there's no God in the sky. There's no person in this state of consciousness or in this galaxy that's talking to us. It's just, Come a different subjective experience and we're interpreting it through this lens of these symbols and uh, we can use whatever symbols we want to represent those. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't get too much into that. Yeah. And the, the way I've always seen it is that I'm confused even trying to think about it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard. The way I've always seen it is that, you know, we've, we have as a child, so we have a six month old child and to see a child orient themselves in the world, orient themselves in consciousness. It's just really interesting to think that all the stuff that we're teaching, all the stuff that we're like the reality that is being taught to a child all the time, these are the experiences that eventually add to who they are as a person, right? These experiences, we talk about going back and maybe old anxieties or old fears exist to protect us from something or they served a purpose in some way. They served a purpose a long time ago, but in the end, um, I love how Michael Gervais, he he has like a really cool analogy about the human mind and the human brain being, you know, software and hardware and how over time we are uploading all these software programs into the brain, of, which is the hardware. The difficult part is to unwrite that that software. But if you unwrite that software all the way back down to the, the beginning, you are essentially what could be interpreted as like pure consciousness, this blank slate, this... I guess like this creative potential palette <laughs> in a way. So I just find it really interesting to hear people's perspective on the human mind and consciousness and where it can go and different perspectives. Cause it's really hard to sit down and say that someone else's perception of reality is, is right or wrong. Right. Cause it's, it's their, it's, it's real for them. You can't say it's not real, even though I haven't experienced, I don't see, I can't see ghosts, you know, <laughs> but I think it's cool in in, in its own way. Yeah. The mind is infinitely creative. And so sure. I, I agree. I, you know, I don't, it's not the way that I've seen the world, but I'm totally open and receptive to it. And I understand that it, it serves a purpose, you know, religion, spirituality, it all helps us create 
structure in our consciousness. And that's what flow is. You know, we can be completely overwhelmed by thinking or going in any different area or way of life. But if we have some sort of belief system, whether it's religion, spirituality, angels, whatever it may be, it gives us some structure and that's where we can move towards and, and find flow in. And so, yeah, I love Mike Gervais analogy that you're saying, Eric. And for me, his emphasis on that, all we need is already within us and that kind of base awareness that we have the capacity to enter flow. Uh, and it's often, as Rumi says, you know, with love, we often just need to remove the obstacles from, from entering that. And that's a lot of those stories and beliefs that others have put onto us. So as you guys are young parents, I want to share one thing that uh, I often uh, really think about with young parents and, and as we grow up is this aspect of conditioned love. Right. So this uh, this phenomenon where we tend to reward our children or whatnot when they do things that we want them to do and to kind of mold them. And, and certainly there's a place for that, but it can also help or it can lead to children developing like an, a, a persona. Right. So I have this external persona now that I know mom and dad really like. So I'm going to keep kind of fueling that. And what that can do is separate us from our authentic self and our intuition and our gut and all that we've kind of been focusing on today. So as you guys move throughout your life as parents, I encourage you to as much as possible to try to stay away from that condition, love. And I'm sure you already do this and will do this, but uh, and to reinforce the child taking uh, autonomy and you know, a lot of those flow triggers so that they can have a genuine connection to who, who they are, right? And not who others think they should be. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So the well, now I got now I need to get into that. <laughs> so you, so you're saying it kind of works both ways, where you know the ego might be there to protect you and create these anxieties and fears, if if that's the way you want to put it. And but there's also the grandeur side of it, where you present them with a reward and it creates a persona around that reward, saying, "Okay, this is the way I should be." thinking externally versus this is the way I should be because this is the way I feel and this is the way I want to be. Yeah. And and so we end up living lives, you know, we've all had people who got into careers or relationships where we find ourselves saying, how the fuck did I end up here? Like, this is not the path I want to take. And often it's because we're living within that ego and that persona that was conditioned within us to be what's right, you know, the right thing to do. I know for me, relationships is always a good uh, example. You know, there's, we get into these relationships and, you know, the person might take off everything we think in our cognitive mind is what we want, but the actual experience of being with the person is like, wait a sec, this doesn't feel great, but we stay in it because we're in that story. We're in that persona and that's what the persona was told is what's right or what where we should move and so coming back and always letting our our own experience in the present moment inform us is of if this is working or not is what i've had to learn through my life uh, in my relationships but uh yeah that's interesting so it's like a a very curious approach to parenting (laughs) yes there you go Hmm. I'm reading that awareness book right now and it's like blowing my mind. I feel like like I usually can absorb like spiritual books or like those kind of abstract ways of thinking like 
pretty easy. With this one, I have to keep rereading like almost every chapter because it's just so far away from where I am, I guess. So he, and I'm very, I'm like, maybe it's my third time reading up to chapter three. Like That's where I'm at right now with this book. But if I can remember properly, he was basically saying that you don't love anybody, that that is, that itself is like, just like a human construct, right? That if you were to challenge that, you could say that like take your spouse, for example, and you have to choose between happiness and your spouse. And almost every single time, if you think about choosing happiness, you feel guilty and you feel like you're supposed to choose your spouse. And then if you do choose happiness and you tell your spouse that, then more often than not, your spouse will be like, well, how dare you choose happiness over me? I would choose you over happiness. And now you have two people that chose each other over happiness. And now both people are unhappy. So like, it's just like such a large concept to try to like break down into like an actual, like to, I guess, like implement in this life. Right. And then he was explaining that through like, you know, child rearing and again, in romantic situations with like fidelity and infidelity. And it's, I love you if, and this trust exists if, so it's like, you don't love the person, you love the idea of the person. And as soon as they break that trust that you constructed in your head. It's just so much to unpack, but basically that the love isn't actually there for that person. Like love exists, but it's, it all is conditional, right? Mm. In the sense of the way humans It's conditional it. on my idea of you. And as soon as you break that idea of who you are to me, then now that becomes conditional. So my idea of you is to behave in such a way of like X, Y, Z, right? Like to be my ideal version of a of a husband slash partner, of a father, right? And then if you break those ideals that I have of who you are, not of who you have of who you are, then that's where like that dissonance happens. Mm. It's just a lot. Yeah. No, will you, will you please say it three more times, Candice, and then we'll- I know that's why I've reread the ch- I've reread chapter one through three like three times because it's just so much. No, to absorb. What, what I'm getting from it, and I, you did a great job articulating it, is I tend to try to think of love as kind of supporting someone with open palms, like that that analogy, as opposed to like a closed palm, like this is what I need you to to how to be or how to act, like how do I just have unconditional love and acceptance for this person and to uplift them and support them. It's a, it's a very hard, hard relationship. Yeah. Relationships are hard. You know, one of the things that I learned when I was over in India and, you know, this, you know, doesn't always work, but the concept behind arranged marriages is really interesting. The way that it was described to me is people go into a partnership for the ultimate goal of supporting that other person to reach samadhi or enlightenment. And so whatever, you know, challenges come up in, in the relationship, if, if you guys, if, if, you know, whomever have the altruistic wish that that person just reaches happiness, let's say, then when we don't follow those scripts, there's a willingness to say, this person is going about their life in a way that they're believing is going to lead them to that happiness. And so there's an acceptance, but we're all ignorant and we all take bad paths of what we think will lead us to happiness and don't. Uh, but that was one of the biggest lessons too, with, with my time over in the East was this concept of empathy, you know, and, and to recognize that we're all seeking happiness and we go about it the best way we know how. And so when someone is doing something that's not 
causing us happiness and what we think is, you know, you're an idiot for doing that. If we just have the awareness that they're using that blueprint or that software that they think will lead them to the, to that happiness, it helps me relieve a lot of tension of, of, of trying to change or control or get upset with people because I recognize, you know, we're all dealing with our own uh, journey to finding happiness the best way we know how, right? I would say for like actionable steps, like for the average listener, like what would you suggest like that a day look like for them to be happier and to be in a space where that they can experience flow more often? Great question. Yeah. So think again back to the flow cycle. So flow is a four stage cycle and we want to look at our day to see how we can go through the cycle, maybe two, maybe three times. And so again, the four stages are struggle, release, flow, recovery. And so for what that looks like in my life is we have a critical period to struggle well right in the morning. Our self-control, which is a muscle, is fully replenished when we wake up. So that pivotal time when we wake up, you know, for me, that's about five to seven to do deep work. And, you know, there's no distractions of the day that are going to come or already no one texting me, emailing me at that point. So really prioritizing to take on the hardest tasks in your work or your profession right off the bat. And what, what people tend to experience is after maybe one hour of, of struggle work, they've accomplished in that time something that they've been pushing off because of all the fires they have to put out throughout their day. And, and so they've won the day already. So I, I really encourage your listeners to, to really prioritize that initial struggle phase. And that was a shift for me, Candace and Eric, because I typically get up and work out right off the bat or do mindfulness. And now I'm jumping right into doing a quick bit of work and using that release activity and that flow activity as my mindfulness and then my exercise. And that reinforces the behavior of kind of crushing the morning. And, and so there's a little bit of the science behind that is yes, one self-control is fully replenished in the morning, but also when we're in sleep, we're in Delta frequency. And so when we wake up, if we get engaged in other tasks, it can drop us down into beta. And so it's a harder leap to get back into flow. But if we go right from Delta to take on a task, we can get into that sweet spot of high alpha and theta right off the bat. So that's that's one tip I'd encourage. And to, to really do that effectively, it starts with the, obviously the night before. So making sure that you know when we get up in the morning to get from our bed to our desk, there's no other task we can jump in quickly and get a quick reward for completing. So no dishes, no laundry. And that's, you know, that's a big thing for me. If there's anything else, it'll be, I'll be a little anxious about it. It'll be all my cognitive load and I want to take care of it, but, it, but it's not leading me towards completing that first task. So winning the morning, winning the nights. And the other piece about winning the nights is we've talked a little bit about the dark side of flow. We know, again, self-control is a muscle, so it gets depleted by the end of the night. That's when most people fail with their diets, with abstinence, with self-control and whatever that looks like for them. And so being protective of our evenings and recognizing that we're at an increased jeopardy of, of falling off the wagon, so to speak, is really key. And, and so with that all said, I'd also encourage doing your to-do list at the end of your workday so you can really crush that morning block. So having a clear plan for the morning. And, and for a lot of people working organizations, they kind of start their day looking at emails, texts, and then saying, okay, how do I want to approach this day? Have conversations with your colleagues and, and try to create that kind of system the night before 
so that you can just jump into that task that's needed to be kind of taken on before or without kind of reading and doing that divergent thinking of taking all, all that uh, information in. Uh, the other aspects is let's prioritize release activities and recovery. Active recovery can look anything from yoga, stretching, a bath, a nap, whatever it is, all those all what those do is replenish our self-control and replenish that that muscle so we can have increased willpower and so that those are a few things that that i'll share right off the bat and i'm happy to go more specific in any direction yeah i've noticed a trend in so take early 2000s maybe pushing into 2010 social media has started becoming such a thing the hustle culture was so prevalent where you need to work 100 hours a week or 120 hours a week, or you're just not doing it right as an entrepreneur or, or you as don't a creative. deserve success. Yeah. yeah, right. So, and I've noticed the shift. Michael Gervais talks about it. The Flow Research talks about it. How important recovery is, and how important it is to to own your schedule and own recovery. Can you talk a little bit more about recovery because I do think it is really important. Yeah, so the key for us at Flow Research Collective is to have our neurobiology work for us and not against us. And so if we're in that constant hustle mode, essentially we're dropped often down into beta uh, frequency and we get we get flooded with cortisol. And as a result, we tend to make more decisions and or sorry, more mistakes and have to go back and fix those mistakes or we take action towards things that aren't our top high priority. So this kind of myth of of hustling and having to rush it can often, you know, impact our ability to be productive on those highest, hardest goals. And so, yeah, we cap, we try to have our clients cap their work hours at, at 35 for weeks. So that's a seven hour workday. And we really build in that recovery, knowing that if we're able to step into flow, we tend to be, or a study by McKinsey's found that individuals are about 500 times more productive. So we know that if you know, we recover well on the weekend, we come into Monday and we spend a significant amount of time in flow, we can accomplish in that one day what our steady state peers might accomplish the whole week. So it's a paradox, much of life is, but we recognize that when we step away, we can come back and, and be more effective and productive as, as doing so. Candice, Eric, what do you guys do for recovery? I've been really bad at it lately. I used to do yoga, walks, baths, like those are all like my go-tos and then having the baby, it's like it's very hard to force yourself to have that time. Mhm. I started taking my my sh- hot showers in the evening. That seems to help. It's a nice gap between if I get up from my desk and need to go and turn into like family, like dad mode, a shower, that gap between there and then walking the dog is a good one for me. And then I'll do uh, short stretches, like mobility exercises or anything like that whenever I remember to do them. And then weekly recovery, I try, I got into a really good habit. I haven't done it in about a week or two, but I started doing these hour to two hour long yoga meditation things on the weekends where I would break up, maybe do about 40 minutes of yoga and then an actual 40 minute long, 45 minute long meditation after that. And I find that if I do those on the weekends, I, it, it's like you, you mentioned it before, how you pass things on to your subconscious mind and through mindfulness, like it really helps you unpack those things. So for me, if I do those on the weekends and really let's just like focus on the body through mobility and then the mind right afterwards through some meditative practice, I feel the stress of the week or whatever was weighing on me, whatever it is, sometimes just goes like out the door and I can just focus on what I'm doing that weekend, which is usually 
family mm-hmm. family stuff. So that's that's usually it right now. But we are working on building a house right now, and we're putting in a infrared sauna. Because <laughs> I and that's what I learned from the Flow Research Collective in the Zero to Dangerous program is that infrared sauna is is good stuff. And I've been trying to get him to take these yoga classes with me. That the entire room is an infrared sauna essentially, and it explained all of the health benefits and longevity that come from infrared sauna. And it takes him doing the Zero to Dangerous course. For him to be like, oh, have you heard about infrared saunas and how good they are for you? He was like, oh, I had no idea. So now he's now he's in love with the idea. Someone else suggested it. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> it's hard to help our loved ones, you know. It is. My psychologist yeah. can't work with their friends or family. You know, it's just too many dual relationships. So mm-hmm. yeah. he comes by it naturally. It's not don't, you know, we can't take that personal, can <laughs> No, no, never. I have one last question. Okay. If, if we have time. Yeah. So one, do you believe in destiny or do you believe in like an, a preordained path? And then before you had mentioned that you had followed a path of your own that leads to the impact that you're trying to make. And I'm curious as to uh, what that impact is and what's your 10-year kind of plan on that. Great questions. Big questions for uh, Saturday morning here. I appreciate it. <laughs> I do believe that uh, I believe in free will. And I think, you know, once we start to believe in free will, we can see that it, that it exists. And once we have that perception that we do have an internal locus of control, we start to take action. I think often society can make us not recognize that. It can make us feel like we're the victim of life and life is happening to us and, and that we're not making an impact. So I certainly believe in free will. I love the expression that we don't find ourselves, we create ourselves. So a lot of the times when people are kind of Time me they're going to go find who they are and whatnot yeah i went to india myself it wasn't to find myself it was to create a new self of who i wanted to be so i certainly believe in in free will in, in that regard and as far as my my personal kind of destiny that i'm trying to live out here you know i kind of told you from the start you know i had a lot of anger as a kid and uh, so my journey these days has has been over the last kind of 10 years to try to enrich the professional journey with this gift of mindfulness to one, help people live more nonviolently towards themselves and, and also towards others. I really kind of got I geeked out on um, Gandhi and Martin Luther King's kind of approach to nonviolence. And I recognize that in my own perspective, I feel that that aspect of you know not responding to the oppressor and how having them see the evilness of their doing through not responding can be applied to our own mind. So when I don't respond to my own judgments, my own criticism of myself, there comes moments of insight where saying like, dude, like that's like, you don't want to listen to that. Like that's, that's, and it'll quiet down as a result of me not acting upon it. And so that's kind of, you know, my path. And for right now, I am, I'm really excited working with the Flow Research Collective as the head coach. I get to work with, you know, high performers all around the world every day. I have a new ebook coming out next week on the dark side of flow, which I'm really excited about, and a podcast on the dark side of flow as well, which is going to go all into the neuroscience of, of self-regulation. So I'm stoked to, to, to jump into that. And yeah, maybe we'll see some more uh, literature out of me in, in the future here. So I'm just super grateful to be where I am in my life. And uh, it's been a long journey as a student to get here, but uh, I'm very privileged and, and fortunate. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm excited to listen, to read, mm-hmm. to educate. 
Please. And I'd love to connect with your listeners. If you, they can follow me on Instagram yeah. if they want at just Brent dot period or period T for Thomas period Hogarth or check out my website, brenthogarth.com. And guys, it's a, it's been a lot of fun. Candice, it's really nice to meet you. Nice to meet uh, you too. Eric is a very fortunate guy to have you as his partner. And, and <laughs> your, your, your child is very fortunate to have you both as parents. I'm sure you're doing a, an amazing job. And Thank uh, you. I'm just fortunate to be friends with you guys. So thanks for the opportunity to, to chat with you this morning. Thanks, yeah. Brent. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have the time, please rate and review. And you can always hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. I hope to have you back.